Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Justice Scalia did an event at UC Berkeley's Hastings College of Law back in 2010 to mark the 24th anniversary of his appointment to the court. It was a conversation with the late Hastings professor Calvin Massey. One of the things they talked about was the original meaning of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Anyway, I go off for another half hour. No, no, I'm sure you get it. I'd be happy to listen to you, but but I I, want to pick up on that with a uh, question about uh, the uh, meaning of the 14th Amendment. In, in 1868, when the 39th Congress was debating and ultimately proposing the 14th Amendment, I don't think anybody would have thought that equal protection would have applied to sex discrimination, or certainly not to sexual orientation discrimination. So does that mean that, that we've gone off on a, in error by Applying yes. Yes. To, to both sex to, to sex discrimination? Sorry to tell you that. But, no, no uh, that's fine. I'm, I'm happy to, but to you hear know, whatever if, you have to if say. If indeed the current society has come to different views, that's fine. You do not need the Constitution to reflect the wishes of the current society. Certainly, the Constitution does not require sexual discrimina- discrimination on the basis of sex. The only issue is whether it prohibits it. It, it doesn't, nobody ever thought that that's what it meant. Nobody ever voted for that. So where do you get it from? If the current society wants to outlaw discrimination by sex, hey, we have things called legislatures and they enact things called laws. You don't need a constitution to keep things up to date. All you need is a legislature and a ballot box. Things will be as up to date as you like. You don't like the death penalty anymore? That's fine. Uh, the Constitution doesn't require it. It simply doesn't forbid it. If you want to eliminate it, you know, vote to eliminate it. You want a right to abortion? To tell you the truth, there's nothing in the Constitution about that. But that doesn't mean you, you cannot prohibit it. Persuade your fellow citizens it's a good idea and pass a law. You've got the right to abortion. And that's what democracy is all about. It's not about a nine, nine uh, uh, superannuated judges who have been there too long, <laughs> right? Uh, in, 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 imposing these uh, uh, these demands on society. I don't know how we ever came to that notion that it's uh, uh, anyway. There is plenty to debate here, but on this point, I think Scalia is probably correct. Most of the people who wrote, passed, and ratified the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause didn't think they were doing away with sex-based distinctions or sex-based discriminations in the law. It actually was the 14th Amendment where we get the word male used for the first time in the Constitution. In Section 2 of that amendment, it says that if a state denies or abridges voting rights to its male inhabitants, who are both citizens and 21 years old, then the basis of the state's representation in the House will be reduced accordingly. The 15th Amendment, ratified in 1870, then went a step further and said that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, but no mention of denying or abridging the right to vote on account of sex. 
And when some of the early advocates of universal women's suffrage went in front of the House Judiciary Committee in 1872 to press their case that the Equal Protection Clause implicitly granted women the right to vote, then asked Congress to pass, under its Section 5 enforcement powers, a bill recognizing the right of women to vote nationally, their proposal was tabled by the committee and never made it to the House floor, didn't go anywhere in Congress. And it wasn't just voting. State laws discriminated on the basis of sex in all sorts of ways. In 1873, just a year after the House Judiciary Committee tabled the women's suffrage proposal, the Supreme Court handed down an opinion in the case of Bradwell v. Illinois upholding the Illinois Bar Association's ban on female membership, effectively making it illegal for women to practice law in the state of Illinois. Justice Samuel Miller wrote in his opinion that man is or should be woman's protector and defender. The natural and proper timidity and delicacy which belong to the female sex evidently unfits it for many of the occupations of civil life, he wrote. The constitution of the family organization, which is founded in the divine ordinance as well as in the nature of things, indicates the domestic sphere as that which properly belongs to the domain and functions of womanhood. The harmony, not to say identity, of interests which belong or should belong to the family institution is repugnant to the idea of a woman adopting a distinct and independent career from that of her husband. The paramount destiny and mission of women are to fulfill the noble and benign offices of wife and mother. This is the law of the creator, he concludes. So according to this case and this Supreme Court opinion, a state that excludes women from the legal profession has not denied any person the equal protection of the laws. In recounting that decision a century later in a 1973 case, Justice Brennan observed that, quote, there can be no doubt that our nation has had a long and unfortunate history of sex discrimination. Attitudes and opinions had, of course, changed over the intervening 100 years. The 19th Amendment, ratified 1920, made it explicit that a state could not deny the right to vote on account of sex. So as the court developed its jurisprudence on racial discrimination in cases like Brown v. Board of Education and the University of California v. Bakke, there was a parallel discussion of the constitutional status of sex discrimination in the 20th century. For equal protection claims, what the court said was that any law that classifies people based on race or national origin is immediately suspect and demands strict scrutiny by the judiciary. Judges will then ask whether there is a compelling governmental interest that justifies classifying people in this way, whether the government in pursuing that interest is doing it in a narrowly tailored way. Other kinds of legal classifications, those based on age or economic status, for example, are not inherently suspect. They require only what the court calls rational basis review rather than strict scrutiny. In a rational basis review case, the court will ask only whether some classification is rationally related to a legitimate government interest. This is where things get interesting with the constitutional politics of sex discrimination and equal protection. In a pair of Supreme Court cases in the 1970s, one of the big and important questions for sex discrimination is whether it's analogous to racial discrimination, therefore should be considered a suspect classification that deserves strict scrutiny or whether it's more akin to discrimination based on age, something that needs only be rationally related to some legitimate government interest. That initial question matters, and the justices on the Supreme Court in 1973 knew it mattered. That comment from Justice Brennan, that there can be no doubt that our nation has had a long and unfortunate history of sex discrimination, came in a case called Frontiero v. Richardson, about a federal law that allowed a U.S. serviceman to claim his wife as a dependent for living support and health benefits. 
A U.S. service woman, however, had to provide additional documentation to verify that her husband actually was dependent on her for over half of his support before she could claim him as her dependent. Sharon Frontiero was in the U.S. Air Force, and she sued when her application to include her husband as a dependent was denied because she didn't supply the necessary documentation. If she were a man, she wouldn't have had to, and she claimed that that was a violation of equal protection. Justice Brennan, writing for a majority, said this, At the outset, appellants contend that classifications based on sex, like classifications based upon race, alienage, and national origin, are inherently suspect and must therefore be subject to close judicial scrutiny. We agree. The problem is that the we there only accounted for four of the justices. It was a plurality opinion, but without a fifth vote, the opinion didn't become binding precedent. Justice Powell, Berger, and Blackman all concurred in the judgment, but they didn't think sex-based classifications were inherently suspect. Plus, they said the Equal Rights Amendment had just been proposed to the states for ratification, so let's see how the political process plays out on this. A few years later, the court was then faced with another sex discrimination claim, but this time it was about discrimination against men. The legal drinking age in Oklahoma was 21 for men, but only 18 for women. Curtis Craig was a man who was younger than 21 and thought that law violated the Equal Protection Clause, so he sued the state's then 34-year-old governor, David Boren. To pull together a majority that would create a precedent for future cases, Justice Brennan then changed the way he described sex-based classifications in that case. It's a subtle but important difference. To withstand constitutional challenge, he writes in Craig v. Boren, previous cases establish that classifications by gender must serve important government objectives and must be substantially related to the achievement of those objectives. Suspect classifications require compelling interests in narrowly tailored policies. Other classifications require only a rational basis and a legitimate government interest. But here, Brennan says that sex-based classifications require important government objectives and policies that are substantially related to the achievement of those objectives. The state said that the law was designed to increase traffic safety. Armed with statistics that said men are more likely than women to drive drunk, the state said that it had good reason to make men wait until they're 21 to buy beer. But the court disagreed. This law may be rationally related to some legitimate government interest, but on closer look, the court said that the state failed to show that the policy was substantially related to the achievement of an important objective. The statistical correlation wasn't that strong. 98% of men had never been arrested for driving drunk, and so sex was not a legitimate, accurate proxy for the regulation of drinking and driving, the court concluded. Commentators have noted that after this case, sex-based classifications were not exactly suspect, but they were quasi-suspect. Justice Rehnquist picked up on that in his dissent. He wrote that the only redeeming feature of the court's opinion, to my mind, is that it apparently signals a retreat by those who joined the plurality opinion in Frontiero versus Richardson from the view that sex is a suspect classification for purposes of equal protection analysis. I think the Oklahoma statute challenged here need pass only rational basis equal protection analysis, and I believe that it is constitutional under that analysis, Rehnquist said. Keep all of that in mind, then, as we turn to the case of United States versus Virginia in 1996. At issue is whether the state of Virginia violated the Equal Protection Clause by operating Virginia Military Institute as an all-male institution as it had since 1839. Virginia's response was to establish the state-supported Virginia Women's Institute for Leadership at Mary Baldwin College, a private liberal arts college for women. That sounds a little bit like separate but equal, something that wouldn't fly were the students being segregated based on race. 
But what if the segregation is by sex? How analogous is that to race for the purposes of equal protection? This is what Justice Ginsburg said in her opinion announcement for the court in that case. The question before us, however, is not whether women or men should be forced to attend VMI. Rather, the question is whether Virginia can constitutionally deny to women who have the will and capacity, the training and attendant opportunities, VMI uniquely affords training and opportunities the VWIL program does not supply. To answer that question, we must have a measuring rod, what lawyers call a standard of review. In a nutshell, this is the standard our precedent establishes. Defenders of sex-based government action must demonstrate an exceedingly persuasive justification for that action. To make that demonstration, the defender of a gender line must show at least that the challenge classification serves important governmental objectives and that any discriminatory means employed is substantially related to the achievement of those objectives. The heightened review standard applicable to sex-based classifications does not make sex a proscribed classification, but it does mark as presumptively invalid, incompatible with equal protection, a law or official policy that denies to women, simply because they are women, equal opportunity to aspire, achieve, participate in, and contribute to society based upon what they can do. Under this exacting standard, reliance on overbroad generalizations, typically male or typically female tendencies, estimates about the way most women or most men are, will not suffice to deny opportunity to women whose talent and capacity place them outside the average description. Justice Ginsburg stopped short of saying that sex should be a suspect classification on par with race, but she did say that the government needed to show an exceedingly persuasive justification before discriminating based on sex. She seemed to raise the bar quite a bit on what kind of sex-based discrimination might be upheld under an equal protection challenge. In dissent, Justice Scalia reiterated his view that the 14th Amendment just didn't say anything at all about this debate because the original meaning of equal protection didn't apply to sex. Speaking of the drafters and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment, he said closed-minded they were, as every age is, including our own, with regard to matters it cannot guess, because it simply does not consider them debatable. The virtue of a democratic system with a First Amendment is that it readily enables the people over time to be persuaded that what they took for granted is not so, and to change their laws accordingly. After this case, though, a majority of the court disagreed with Scalia's analysis. Sex discrimination was not exactly like racial discrimination, but it was pretty close. It required a heightened standard of review, not just rational basis, and the government had to show an exceedingly persuasive justification for its sex-based distinctions. Fast forward now to our current moment. One of the big debates we're having is whether discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity is tantamount to sex discrimination should be treated the same way in constitutional and legal analysis. It's a question we'll take up in the next episode.